Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome to Writer's Routine. It's a non-fiction week this week. Always nice to throw these in. Uh, we're chatting to James Warman. He's the best-selling author of Stuffocation. And he's back with his new book, Time and How to Spend It. Now, we talk about how he took this huge idea like time and living life in the best way and then condensed it into 300-odd pages. Uh, also, we learn about how much he focused on the tricks of fiction writing and how that worked for him for non-fiction. And we talk about how much he actually thinks about what he's writing while he's writing. I'm just, I'm, I can get into a flow. You know, it can be a little emotional. You know, I, I've definitely had days where I've sat and just like, a story's come and I've sat there and I've cried and, you know, but you just let it come out and, it, you know, you never know where it's going to take you. And I find that the, the, the weird magic of writing is that it just comes. So stick around. That's all on the way with James Warman in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around. Uh, Now, before we crack on with James, if you're in the United States listening to this right now, and I know there's quite a hefty chunk that are, uh, I've teamed up with Libro.fm audiobooks uh, to give you something amazing. You see, Libro.fm, they let you purchase audiobooks directly from your favourite local bookstore which means you can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from bookstores all around the country. Now, with Libro.fm, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the one that I'm talking about. Uh, But you'll be part of a much different story. You're helping out writers, local booksellers. You're part of a story that supports the community and you're not just going to some massive conglomerate, a huge behemoth of a middleman. Uh, Now, for you, if you're in America, only if you're in America, hopefully in the next year or so, it will come to everyone around the world. But right now, it's just if you're in the United States, uh, you can get a three month audiobook membership for the price of one. Uh, So go to Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, Libro.fm, and you enter the code ROUTINE. And then you'll get a three month audiobook membership for the price of one. You see, it's the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you're helping support the writing community, and that's really what we're about. And then with each listen, you can take pride in knowing 
you're supporting local bookstores. So if you're in America, if you want to help out the writing community, if you want three months of audiobook memberships for the price of one, uh, go to Libro.fm and enter the code ROUTINE. This week on the show, we're chatting to James Warman. Now, his first non-fiction book, Stuffocation, was a huge success. It was all about living more by getting rid of your stuff. And now he's back with his new book, It's Time and How to Spend It. You see, after telling people to get rid of all their stuff and make the most of their time with experiences, he's giving us insights into what to do with those experiences. Well, what we should look to do, how we analyse our personality, what we enjoy, and then use that to plan days out, weekends away, even whole holidays. And for that, he uses the acronym STORIES. STORIES stands for story, transformation, outside and offline, uh, relationships, intensity, uh, extraordinary, uh, and then status. And with that acronym, uh, you can kind of figure out every time you're off to do something, you can use it. Uh, and kind of put it through the machine of stories to see if that experience is going to be worthwhile, if you will enjoy it. Now, we talk about the acronym and why it was important to him as a writer when he's trying to distill these big ideas into only a book. Uh, We find out why he chose it, how it came to him. Also, you can hear how he wanted the whole book to read a bit like classical fiction and how he used tips and tricks from the best novelists for that. You see, James is just full of passion for writers that he loves. And you can hear it in spades in the chat. He enthuses about them. He reads out some of his favourite passages and it was just a joy to be around such a student of of writing uh, and storytelling. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Uh, What I'll do, because there's quite a lot that James recommends through the chat, uh, I'll leave the best ones so you can pick up on it in the podcast notes so you can have a look at it wherever you're listening to this. And we start off, as always, with James Warman talking about what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I start with a pencil. I'm a pencil writer. Um, So the first thing I... I write in different places. So where we're sitting right here now in my kitchen, I write here. I need, my wife thinks I'm incredibly precious and I am. I can't work in, I work in co-working spaces when I'm doing other work. But for writing, that is awful for me. I, I don't mind putting headphones on and being, um, sorry, that was not, this is not a short answer. Um, I really like being in airy open spaces north facing is ideal because you don't have too many issues with the sun with lots of space around me um cafes can be okay as long as they're not kind of too busy i have a local pub that i go to that's quiet during the daytime really spacious put my headphones on um so you know don't mind a bit of hubbub that's fine um but yeah so i need space around me i need a time window in front of me as well i need a time window of like I know that I've got two to three hours. So the pressure is off me to produce anything that's any good. Well, we'll, we'll come back to the, the, the time because that's kind of the point of the show. Let me just talk to you about the space, which is interesting because there isn't a consistent space. So you need air, you need space around you. It's not a consistent space because I'm not a desperately wealthy writer who has, you know, as you can see, I've got a two up, two down house. I don't have an office. So my... My office is very, I feel like David Brent in, um, um, you know, after he'd left the office and he was like, hey, you know, my office can be anywhere. Yeah. But, you know, I have uh, I have two laptops. 
um and um ideally i just need I, you know i have different offices so for my f- first book i wrote a lot in this kitchen but i also used to go to kensington central library went to the the um hammersmith library too but kensington central library is really nice because it's big and spacious i went to my in-laws house because they were away and I would get up super early and I turned their dining room into my space. I'd get up at like four in the morning and, uh, you know, coffee and here we go. And big, I, I, I use big pieces of paper, like a, a whiteboard, as you can see, I use this whiteboard to kind of organize my thoughts. And then I kind of regurgitate and try again. Um, my process of thinking is to kind of throw it all out, put ideas on big whiteboards or pieces of paper and then try and make connections. And once I've made those connections, I'll have another, I have um, large pieces of kind of A3 paper and I then draw a flow of how I'm going to work. And I draw it in a kind of um, snaky style, if you like, you know, A to B, B to C. And then I can say, hold on a second, D shouldn't be here. It should be here. It makes more sense there. Um, So the, the, the process, if I can say, is like sort of throw it all up there using big pieces of paper. I then um, try to make connections there. It's great if I can get talk it out with my wife and say, I'm thinking this, this to this. I then will draw out a flow of how I think the ideas make sense. And of course, at that point, there's that lovely line in um, one of A.A. Gill's books where he says, it's not what you put in, it's what you leave out that counts. So, you know, I'm also happy for things just to go. Um, And then I write that flow out and the stage from there is for me to um, write with a pencil in a sometimes I've got I go to Muji and get one of these these big kind of drawing pads, I guess they are. And I guess that's kind of A3. So maybe the pieces on the wall that I use like A2 or A1, but they're really, you know, they're big. Um, And I'll scribble on that or I use, you know, an A4 pad and scribble out in pencil and just let it flow. And, you know, there are times when. Um, I'm not even too worried what's coming out. I just let it go. And then that gives me space to realize that that order I've worked out isn't really working kind of thing. And then I type it up. And as I type it up, I'm kind of typing up what I've written down with a pencil. It sounds really complex, right? And really like <laughs> I try too hard, but it's just otherwise I can't think. If I just type words on a page... It's just a mess and it creates much more editing afterwards. So what happens then is I'll type it up um, onto a document. And what's interesting I find in the process there is that I both type exactly what's on the page, but also kind of flow in a different way. And sometimes it means that I've got to kind of go, hold on, that works better if I do this, that's going to change. Um, And then, of course, the editing process. But I try to, one of the things you'd see when I was writing is I have a big poster that has the chapters will be by color. I'll have a kind of, and it's almost like I create a tower of color to indicate how many words I've written. Because I know there's a word count. Um, I try and keep that down, but also I just let it let it flow. And then it's, you know, writing, you know, great writing is great editing, I think. And, you know, the first time I, first, I've only written two books, but the first book I wrote, I didn't know if I could write a book. I didn't know if I had, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 of interesting words that I could string together. It's a hell of a long way from beginning to end, you know, for, for it to all make sense and come in the right order. And, um, you know, the first day I think I wrote 400 words. The second day I wrote um, 600. Then it was 800. And at times I've, I've got up to where I'm writing 4,000 words in a day. And that's, you know, that's on the machine. Um, 
because that's how I figure out how many I've written. And that's quite one of the things that that does is it feels like I've got some progress happening. Because the, the great thing is, um, you know, Giacometti, the sculptor. So in a Giacometti sculpture, he has these very thin, almost the opposite of kind of a Henry Moore. But what he does is he kind of puts everything there and then cuts it away. And he removes everything that isn't the sculpture, but maybe a bit like A.A. Gills. And for me, the way that I write is to try and get rid of everything that isn't the story. But until I've got something there that I can carve away from, um, I find that quite hard. It's easier to subtract than to add. You know, there's different stages of the creative process. You know, kind of um, green hat, everything's great. Red hat, this is rubbish kind of thing. Do, do you see what I mean? Um, if I can just carry on. The, the, you know, the Stephen King thing about the door open, the door closed. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic piece of insight. And my first book, certainly. Just elaborate that on yeah. that for those who haven't yeah. heard it. Sorry. So um, Stephen King's on writing, um, which is about writing fiction rather than uh, nonfiction, which I write uh, or have written so far, is, uh, you know, there's a bunch of interesting points in there. But I think the most powerful one is the idea of the door open and door closed. And the idea is that you write the first version for yourself. You are the first reader of your own work. And if you have the door closed and it's psychological, much more than physical, of course, you're not worried about what your editor thinks or what your wife thinks or what your husband thinks or your what what the critics think you know for, you know forget all those friends who told you you couldn't write all those you know the um the one star reviews that you get where people are like why is this person bothering and you kind of go uh, you know can i do this forget that the, the first thing is to let the story come out that's the door closed and then the door open is when you go back in afterwards and you say well i need to prepare this for to show to the world because there are going to people that are going to knock it and I need to feel when it's published that I'm proud of it so if people say it's rubbish but I've done what I think is a good job that's okay I don't know if I had a sudden moment I think it was a process of discovery um like I said I didn't think I was going to I wasn't sure if I was going to write another book I don't know what the next book would be because suffocation was such a you know, it was quite a few years in the making and it was about a major, a major structural trend that I believe is happening in our society. And I guess I saw myself, I see myself as a, a cultural commentator. And so if I was going to write another book about how our culture is changing, it would, and it would have to, it would be about, I guess, about AI or um, shorter working weeks or something like that. Do you see what I mean? And there's other people writing about that. So I didn't really have anything to add to the... What am I going to say? I'm, I'm going to write about um, universal basic income. You know, is that... Well, other people are doing that. So the thing about suffocation is I identified something before other people had. So I really had something to say. Um, and so coming to this idea was, I'd like to say something. <laughs> or say something interesting. Ah, I know this stuff. I, I've got something to say here that's interesting and worth saying. So, I what questions were people asking you at events that you mentioned that would lead you towards figuring that this was the answer to them? I mean, the simplest question they'd ask is okay, great, you say we should spend less on stuff, spend on experiences. What kind of experiences? There was a moment, I was at the um, RSA, the Royal Society of Arts, and I was giving a talk there about suffocation, and this guy stood up. And he said, uh, I want to take my son to the Okavango Delta in Botswana. 
but he doesn't want to come. He's told me he'd rather stay home and play Xbox. And besides, he can see hippos on the TV. What should I say to him? Didn't know the answer. I mean, I've got an opinion. You know, obviously I've got an opinion. Uh, you know, this guy's crazy. Why wouldn't you want to see hippos live from a boat in this amazing place? Um, but I, that was an opinion. And the thing is, as a non-fiction writer and someone who's kind of geeky and a you know researcher by background and journalist by background, if I'm going to say this is the answer, I really ought to have something that backs that up. I mean, that's the, you know the journalist in me, um, and um, so I started wondering if that if if there was an answer to that, if anyone had figured that out. And what was interesting for me is the lots of the people that I would talk to. And the psychologist I was in, in touch with for Stuffication, who discovered this thing about, um, you know, experiences being better than things, the research has, has moved on. So the research had, had shifted from whether stuff or experience is better for, for well-being to um, what kind of experiences. There was, there was some early research into that area. And so I guess being asked those questions and seeing that, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is a useful thing to do. So you've got that idea then, that yeah, initial yeah. concept. Okay, I'm going to write a book that answers these questions. Yeah. How, what do we do with our time? Very simply, then what did you do? Bags and bags of research. Where did you start with the research? Um, research is all about answering questions that you're asking yourself. How were you forming those questions that you needed to research? Um, there's a really there's a couple of books I read about nonfiction work, and I think this was something from a guy called Gay Talese, who wrote Thy Neighbour's Wife, and um, I think he wrote what is supposed to be one of the greatest articles of all time called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. It's on Esquire. You can look it up online. Fantastic article. Very much the new journalism from the late 60s and early 70s, sort of Hunter Thompson and um, uh, what's his name? Tom Wolfe. Um, and he talks about how you are, keep asking questions till you um, catch up with yourself again, or you start hearing the same answers, essentially. And so my research was re finding loads of um, research papers by psychologists and anthropologists and talking to uh, not all of them, because you know there's only so many hours in a day, but getting in contact with loads of people and saying, I'm looking into this area I see you've done something here. Is there anything else I should follow? And it's kind of, you know, going down the wormhole and just, just go looking. And um, for my first book, I, you know, I joined up to LSC. I went to the British Library. There was a particular book I could only find. There's only one copy at the Imperial War Museum. For the second book, I was doing a course at Cambridge at the time. Um, it's an entrepreneur's course, a kind of um, MBA, but for entrepreneurs. I'd done a startup and sort of failed. And uh, so I had access to all these libraries at Cambridge, which is awesome because, uh, you know, getting hold of some of this stuff sometimes, you know, you need to get through paywalls. So I just download loads and loads of these papers. I then put them on a, um, you know, I get the PDF and I then put them on a device and I look through and I make notes and, you know, I end up with a big piece of paper saying, I'm starting to see this dot, join this dot. Is this really, can I say this? Do I want to say this? And then I go... And then do you see, see that process as gathering and then coming up with theories and sounding them out with people um, and, you know, speaking to, you know, let's say Tom Gilovich at Cornell University um, and saying, hey, so I've looked at this. I've looked at I've looked at your work here and some other work here and there's something else here. I'm thinking this. What do you am I, am I an idiot or does that make sense? And 
once I've spoken to a few of those people who are in the field, and when they start to say things like, well, what's that paper? I don't know that paper. Um, or, wow, okay, I didn't realise that. Or, well, yes, that makes sense. I think I'm onto something. And then I start to sort of bring it all together. It makes it sound really easy. Um, and uh, bring it all together, but I know that I'm heading in the right direction. So then it's about creating that into a certain kind of shape. Before you get to the shape, when you are researching this, what do you know about what you want it to be? So you've got this initial concept all about how what, what experiences we should fill our time with. What are you trying to say as a non-fiction writer? If you're collating all this research, are you at all aware of the end point of this research or is it a bit open-ended? No, I think I'm aware of... I'm aware of where I want it to go. Um, I really like, if you, if you look at a book like About a Boy, I can't think of who, who the author is. Uh, Nick Hornby. Yeah, great, exactly. So, um, or Start of a Ten. It's kind of very simple. I, I, you know, I've tried to read, sort of, I mean, I've read some chick lit as well. The great thing about great writers, I think, or, you know, Dickens, um, is it's written in a way that's easy to read, easy to, I want it to be really easy to read. And if you look at, yes, say that Nick Hornby work, is it's also um, done in kind of tube stop chunks, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading Don Quixote at the moment, which is really funny, but I really like um, short books. Your Voltaire's Condide, you get through a lot, you get through a lot very quickly. And, um, so I definitely want this to be something that is really accessible. And I think what I'm, I hope this is okay to say this, but I think what I'm good at is taking ideas that may be complex and reading some of these papers are pretty dull. And, you know, I'm not an expert in statistics. So, you know, I sometimes have to contact friends of mine who are economists. So I've got a friend who's an um, archaeologist and kind of go, I'm thinking this or what, how do I, <laughs> where do I make sense of this thing? You know, I got, I've got friends that are cleverer than me that can sort of help me shape this stuff. But I think I'm good at taking ideas that are fairly complex and making them kind of simple. Um, Why do you think so, you're good at that? Where does that come from? I believe in sim this sounds ridiculous. I believe in things being really simple. So I studied philosophy as part of my first degree, and um, I remember sit being sat in in tutorials in sort of these arcane places in Oxford, and these you know incredibly clever people sounding off about possible worlds or weird things about the philosophy of religion and philosophy of mind. And I often found myself thinking, look, this is great, but it's not that. It's not. It's you can make things really, really complicated if you want to. And I recognise there are people that definitely have, you know, uh, better cognitive ability than me to put complex ideas together and follow a thread. So maybe it's just, I think that when things are kind of complicated, you can kind of make them really complicated if you want to, but that's not clever. Look, at, I guess this is partly from my, you know, I, I am a journalist. I don't do a lot of uh, writing articles, but I, I was a paper boy when I was a kid delivering papers and I remember reading uh you know in the summer in the summer holidays or whatever I'd read the papers before I delivered them all and I always found it really fascinating that you know the sun and the guardian and the telegraph and the mail and whatever could tell the same story in so many different ways and 
lots of people will put down the sun uh, and the male, obviously, for being, you know, they they make something very simplistic. But the sun can capture so much in so few words. And actually, The Economist, when I've... um, when I've been an editor and you know had teams of people working for me, I will talk to people who, who work for me and say, look, you should look at the sun and the economist because they can make complex ideas really simple. You can read the economist as a real non-expert in so many different areas. And the, you know, they chop sentences up in a really interesting, sometimes non-grammatical way. And the sun takes complex ideas and makes it really simple. So I just think that's a good way to also if you want the ideas in this book of how to spend your time, I want to reach lots of people. I mean, not just to sell lots of copies, but I think it's it's pretty useful. Um, so I definitely have an end product in mind that should be, yeah, simple ideas. But stories are important too, right? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we get back to it with James, uh, a reminder very quickly, if you are enjoying the show, if you want to see us put out episodes as often as we can, I know I'm saying that on the back uh, of a two-week break, hopefully in a few months' time, uh, we'll get back to it where we are bringing you an episode a week. If you'd like to see that happen, please do support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a dollar or so a month uh, really helps us bring you these episodes with some of the best authors around as frequently as possible it helps me buy them a coffee it helps me get to wherever they are it helps me buy new equipment so i can record them so i can get it online and all of that stuff you don't go home empty-handed from it either there's little bits of merch just to say thanks uh, for you being part of the club and the community that we've got going on here there's badges there's bookmarks uh, and thank you to everyone from all over the world by the way from places in australia and in america if you have supported the show Uh, I really do appreciate it. Uh, And I'm getting you out the things that I've promised you that you've pledged for as soon as possible. I think I've posted them all. If you've not got it yet, it's just because they're having to travel literally halfway across the world. And if you do want to say thanks to us on the show uh, for bringing you now, what, 80 episodes with some of the best authors on the planet, uh, you can. It's so easy. It doesn't cost a lot. Anything that you can spare goes such a long way, I promise. Just pledge what you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. 
Hi, I'm Ruth Hogan and my book Queenie Malone's Paradise Hotel is out now. And my writing tip is if you get stuck, if you get something that I would call a plot knot, go to bed and let your brain work it out on its own. Stop trying to help it because it'll do it by itself. Let's get back to it then with this week's guest on Writer's Routine, James Warman, the author of Time and How to Spend It. Uh, in this half, we talk about how he analyses the authors that he loves, what he takes from them, what he's looking out for when he's reading and scribbling down notes in, in the sides of the pages. Also, I know that we've not actually done the point of the podcast yet, the writing routine. Don't worry, that's coming up right at the end. Uh, remember as well, uh, James make, is making loads of references throughout the show. If you miss any of them, if you want to catch up on them and find out more about what he's saying, uh, you can in the show notes wherever you're listening to the podcast. And we pick things up, we get back to it, talking about what James does to make sure that his work reads well when it finally comes to the edit. I read my work out loud. And because, you know, mine's non-fiction, I'm not writing like a fiction author in someone else's voice. Um my intention is that it sounds like me and actually great advice I've got um you know Clarkson's books a really good example um whether you like him or loathe him I think his he's got a fantastic simple style and you know he was a journalist at 17 so he is um I think a fantastic writer I really like the simplicity of his writing the way he makes points simply so I'm definitely thinking about that when I'm editing but when I'm actually writing thinking about the next word not at all I'm just, I'm, I can get into a flow. Um, you know, it can be a little emotional. You know, I, I've definitely had days where I've sat and just like a story's come and I've sat there and I've, you know, cried and, you know, but you just let it come out and it, you know, you never know where it's going to take. And I find that, you know, the, the, the weird magic of writing is that it just comes. Um, but I definitely believe in choosing the Anglo-Saxon simple word over the Latinate word where possible sometimes you know some of those words come in and they seem to be the right one and also when I'm editing I have to be very careful in that my as you can probably hear the way I'm talking my mind just kind of flows and flows and flows and that means that if I was just to write that stuff down I could end up with really long sentences that nobody would follow incredible digressions and so when I go into the editing mode I'm trying to deal with the James who <laughs> thinks he's can write and I'm trying to deal with that as the editor who's like just pipe down get you out of the way and let the story come through because you know when you're reading something when you're reading too many words you skip it I do and that's the sign of a bad writer um, or an overindulgent writer so what you need to do is kind of manage that side or for me anyway <laughs> um, you clearly spend a lot of time thinking about the way it's read the editing of it which is amazing for a non-fiction writer what tricks do you think you use that are almost exclusive for a fiction author you mentioned it being tube stop chunks you know keeping people reading often non-fiction can be incredibly dry what are you doing aside from it being concise to make sure that it isn't dry to make sure that when someone gets to the end of a chapter they're not going to put it down and put it on the pile with all the other non-fiction books that they think they're going to read and then never end up doing so my writing heroes are i'm not sure of the order of this but tom wolf uh malcolm gladwell and michael lewis when I went to write my first book, I read 
uh, like I say, um, I don't know if it's useful. I'm, I could get those books and say what they are. Um, but, um, you know, how to write good nonfiction. And one of the comments I remember from one of the books was about how you should read the authors you love and break their code and then kind of play with that. Now, my, so I said about my first degree, you had philosophy, it also had literature in it. So I looked at um, Homer and Virgil and um, it, was it was classics, right? So, you know, I've studied literature um, and I studied some French literature as part of a French A-level years ago as well, a guy called Racine, um, a dramatist. And um, so I broke the code of the way that Gladwell writes because he manages to walk people up the path and play with them. And he is... In his book, What the Dog Saw, there's one particular... I mean, all the essays in that are fantastic. He is an exceptional writer. That said, I think Michael Lewis is the greatest non-fiction writer alive today. He is Homeric in the tricks that he uses. It's really interesting that he denies using tricks. But if you analyse his work, as I've done, I'll happily show you how I've kind of gone through it. And he uses sort of rhetorical tricks of repetition. Actually, Dickens does it in his book... Um, it's not great expectations. Uh, maybe it's hard times. It's the one it talks about fog. It is. Can I get it and read yeah, it? Yeah, of course, yes, please. Yeah, because it's just repeat fog. It's so actually, all right, it is exceptional. Okay. Anyway, here we go. Right, cool. so, Michael Lewis. Okay. The reason that Dickens, I think, is compelling to read is that his stuff was written for the newspapers in sort of bite-sized chunks, but also at a time when lots of people couldn't read. So it was, it was written to be read aloud, to really reach yeah. its audience. And since when we read, we, um, if you're reading a story, you're reading it kind of aloud in your head, if not actually aloud. I never thought about that. One of the reasons I don't read loads of Dickens, I have read some and I enjoy it, but I find it slightly too... I find the narrative voice slightly too didactic at times. It's slightly irritating, but that makes perfect sense if I'd never thought of it like that. He, he, the, the narrator is the biggest character in most of his stories because someone is reading it to loads and yeah. loads of people. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, it's fine. So um, I, in, in mine, I'm very conscious of, of writing stories mm. because that's how we communicate. Um, we've always communicated that way. And lots of non-fiction books are like, do this, do that. It's... <sighs> It's just not really fun to read. I want somebody that reads one of my books to actually enjoy reading it. And in fact, my probably the best compliment was my stepfather, who can't read my books. Um, and he says, oh, just, it's like reading a novel. I don't get it. I'm like, that's kind of the point. I'm supposed to be, you know, intrigued by it. So, so tricks is, is, you know, rhetorical tricks, I think, are, are really yeah. important. So um, Bleak House at the beginning, there's this wonderful piece about fog in the first chapter um, where Dickens says fog everywhere fog up the river where it flows among green eights and meadows fog down the river blah 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 fog on the Essex marsh, marshes fog on the Kentish heights fog creeping into the cabooses of coiler brigs blah 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 fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich, ancient Greenwich pensioners fog in the stem and bowl fog and it continues and he picks up this theme it's really rich um, 
But repetition is something you have to be so careful with. And I think Michael Lewis nails it because he tends to repeat but then build on ideas. And the classic, and you know, if you read any of Churchill's speeches or, you know, Martin Luther King, I have a dream, mm. I have a dream. But he doesn't just say, I have a dream. He has, I have a dream and he builds on it. And Michael Lewis has this also this very filmic uh, sense. I'm going to try and find one example from um, The Blind Side. Uh, his book about American football. So the opening actually is, is just fantastic. He has this this sort of beat where he says one miss. That counting in American football, they do, say one Mississippi, two Mississippi, because it makes takes you a, a second to say it. So he does one Mississippi and he says a whole bunch of stuff, and then a little bit later he says two Mississippi, and then three Mississippi comes a bit later. But it's something that pulls you in. It's sat. You can hear it being said. The notes that you've scribbled all over the pages. Is that from you reading, you learning the tricks, you analysing what he's doing? Analysing. It's not just reading. I mean, it's... it's, What are you looking out for? I'm looking for ways that somebody who I think is... Like I said, I think this guy is our greatest living uh, non-fiction writer that I know of in the English language. The ways that he keeps the story moving and he hooks people in and he entertains people and makes you want to. Because the thing is, you, you need that kind of, you know, that engine that keeps you going through that question all the time, you know, kind of curiosity gap, closed curiosity gap. But you need to want to read the next sentence too. And he has, um, I think, lots of tricks. Tricks is possibly the one, techniques that he uses to keep you interested in the, the overall. Um, direction that this book is going but also makes you want to read the next paragraph so it's really important at the end of a chapter to kind of have a dun 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 dun. so there's a a feeling that it's come to a close but you can use the cliffhanger as you know there's lots of ways to so it feels satisfied you know if you leave a reader at the end of a chapter and they think okay i get that and obviously what you really want in terms of the you know in terms of drama you want to start at one place and end somewhere else so there needs to be a you know different um a sense at the end that something has happened, ideally dramatic. So you, if you leave a reader with that satisfaction, they know if they read the next chapter, they're going to get the, the same. But you also want to catapult them through to the next thing as well. So you need to have constant questions that are being asked. One of the techniques that you use is these seven rules. You, you've you spelled out your, your chapters. They It's an acronym, isn't it? Stories. Yeah. Talk to me about when you realised that was the hook for your book? The seven rules was the pro- came from the process I was talking about where I had all these different sheets of paper trying to say, okay, how should you spend your time in order to be happy? What's the answer to that? And having all these different um, nuances of it's this and it's that and it's the other and saying, okay, so what works together? What can I put into little parcels together and there's a wonderful book called The Checklist Manifesto by a guy called Atol Gawande that illustrates the power of checklists for being memorable. Of course, you know, stories is easy. And, you know, if it was some more complex thing. Or, the, the problem with, with um, the, way the, sci- the, the way that scientists write, of course, is they're looking at particular little things and they'll often say, well, if you do this in this particular circumstance, this will be the result. Yeah. Well, um, people can't carry that around in their minds it's too complex when you open your bag you want a few things to come out you know so here you are on a friday night or a saturday or someone says to you what was that book about you need to have one thing Uh, i remember telling um journalists that wrote for me 
there was the picture it test, the grandma test and the taxi test. So the picture it test, and this is, you know, I try and use this in my book is can somebody picture it? And that's using as many of the senses as you can, you know, especially I think, um, sound and what something smells like. If you can bring smell into something, there's many senses, you, you get that idea. Um, and um, the grandma test is, would your grandma understand it? Because it's too, you know, the curse of knowledge. We think things are, um, uh, we, we don't realise that other people don't know what we know. And then um, the taxi test is, if you're in a cab after a reading something or whatever, and someone called you and you, you, know, you picked up your phone, and they say, oh, where you been? You say, oh, I've been to this place. They say, what was it about? And it's that one thing mm. that you take away. And so I wanted to have a checklist because I wanted to, this to pass the taxi test. And I want it to make a difference for people. I want them to enjoy it for, for the reading aspect. But I would hope that someone could also get something of practical value. And that stories checklist is intended to give them something that they can say, what should I do with my time? Oh, stories. What do they stand for again? And then maybe somebody remembers one bit, one another. Maybe they check the book again. Or maybe they remember what some of it's about and they actually use it because then they will be happier, which is what the science strongly suggests. And then I've done a decent job and it's worth my time doing something. So I've got two kids and a wife and my kids go to school and I was writing this book uh, while one was here, actually, in the house, because he hadn't started school yet. So the best thing to do always is to escape as much as possible for me. I'm a morning person. So the best thing for me to do is to get up super early, go to bed really early, um, bed by like, this is embarrassing, like put the kids to bed and go to sleep with them. I'm serious. We're kind of hippies. So it's only this past couple of weeks now that um, my son is in year one and my daughter's in year four that our kids just weren't in our bed all the time. Um, what time are you waking up in the morning then if you're putting what is super early for you? Well, I wouldn't set an alarm. So the magic of going to bed, putting the kids to bed and then wait until whatever time I wake up is I just wait. And the nice thing about that is you wake up with your body. So there are, there are times when I was like, I remember once I got up about, th I remember coming down here and it was 3.53. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've got tea, I've got coffee. Um, and because and I work for myself, I can manage my own day. So if I need to um, take, I, I'll take two and a half hours in the after, you know, uh, I'll take off and go to the gym or go do some exercise or just take some time out and go for a walk or have a nice lunch with somebody. Um but I work well in the mornings. Once the kids are out, I get out of the house um, about 6.37 because they start getting up and stuff. In fact, it was before then. And there's a local cafe that opens at 6.30 and um, really friendly people. Put my headphones on, work there till just after eight. Uh, and then it fills up with loads of people. And I come back here and I take the kids to school and I have a break. And uh, then I'll come back and settle in again or ideally my favorite pub down the road the Hampshire Hog which is pretty quiet during the day north facing really airy they have coffee and tea 
and Wi-Fi. When I f- wrote my first book, they had no Wi-Fi, and that was fantastic. So that's one thing I definitely do. I switch my telephone off. I have a permanent out-of-office on anyway, but that was, came slightly from writing the book. Um, but it's really important to stay. I, I take Twitter and everything off my telephone. Um, I take distractions away. Yeah, and I, I will work through till, you know, some kind of lunchy time. Um, definitely take a break. Definitely do some kind of exercise. And then I, I, my mojo, my creative ability just disappears in the afternoon. I'm kind of useless. So the best thing I can do is just stop. Now, depending on the pressures that I've got, I might take time off and then at about 4, 4.30 start again. And then that'll involve caffeine again, coffee or tea. And then I'll work through till maybe seven or eight-ish, and then I'm done. Lastly, after the, uh, in the end... Is that uh, interesting? Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's the point of the show, but oh, it wasn't okay. interesting. <laughs> we, I wouldn't have done like 70-odd episodes. Okay, so wow. um, after the success of Stuffocation that came after it being self-published and then Penguin picking it up and then it was on Radio 2, they kind of went nuts with it. What did you learn about the way you write books and stories before you sat down uh, with this one? I got more confident about my own voice. Um, It was one of the first things that my editor, um, who's now the MD of Ebury, which is part of um, Penguin Random House, said to me, he was like, wow, your voice is so much stronger and better um, now, which is great, actually. It's really kind of liberating. Um, My first book, I stopped everything because I didn't know if I could do it. And it was all that I did. This next book, I fitted in around, and I just had one child at the time, but, you know, my wife managed that. Um, You know, kids, wife, work. I was also doing a course in um, entrepreneurship at the same time as part of the, you know, the key writing part. So it had to fit in around my life. So I had to be much more disciplined. But having done one, I knew that I could probably do it again. And... The amount of notes I had for my first book were, um, I mean, off, off the floor. I had them in the, the, the wardrobe until quite recently. They must have been, let me stand up so I've got a sense of this. They, it was above my waist. So I, was, was that three foot, three? I don't know. I guess it's, it's more than that because I'm six foot one and that's more than halfway through. Oh, so right, yeah. That's the height of a, well, yeah, it's high, about, about maybe I'm exaggerating, but about the height of a, yeah. you know, um, your, your kitchen cupboards. Um, I took a lot, and the second one, notes were about that high. I mean, partly because I was printing less, but m- more because I was so nervous first time round that I'd missed something, that I took so many notes. And the second time round, I was much more confident to know that most of the stuff that people said to me, most of the stuff that I read, not that it wasn't going to be useful, but I was more attuned. My ear was tighter to what I was actually going to need. So I took far, I had far fewer notes. And yet in many ways, I mean, there's way more science in this one. I mean, I have digital stuff, I guess. I've become much more digital in the way I read stuff. But, um, and now I know my process. I mean, even describing it to you now, I mean, if you'd asked me this after that's how, I mean, suffocation, I was discovering how, how am I going to do this? How is this going to work for me? How do, how do I work? Because I know there are some people who just write straight onto a computer. 
And even now, you know, if I write articles for somebody, I'm writing, you know, report or whatever, I scribble it out in pencil first. And every time I don't scribble it out in pencil first, I wish I had it done later because it saves me time because it organises my thoughts. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to James for inviting me round. Uh, i got to be honest, we did it on a tiny um, time turnaround. It was at such short notice. I think I met him first on the on the Sunday somewhere, and then I sent him an email, and then I was at his house recording on, on the Tuesday. So when I actually chatted to him, I didn't have a chance to read the book. I have since read it, and it's awesome. It's such a brilliant way to help you make the most of your time. That story's acronym. I went away like uh, a week or so after I'd done the chat and it really helped me kind of figure out the best things to do uh, with my time to make sure I was efficiently using uh, the time that I had uh, on holiday. It's well worth a read, I promise. It's called Time and How to Spend It. It's by James Warman. Now, next week, we're chatting to Harriet Evans. We're back to fiction, uh, talking all about her brand new book, The Garden of Lost and Found. If you have enjoyed the show, if you want to say thanks for all the tips that James gave you, please do pledge what you can over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. If you're listening to this in America, in the United States, remember to take advantage of that Libro.fm offer. Uh, just use the code routine when you're checking out on the website uh, if you can leave us a review on the apple podcast store i'm loving to see all those at the moment and give us a follow on twitter and on instagram and i will see you next week with harriet evans on writer's routine bye planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 